how can we accelerate women in the health sector, specifically in health entrepreneurship, startups, indeed anywhere, uh, to have them at the table, top tables with boards and C-suite? Welcome to The Entrepreneur's Doctor, where together with my guests, we help you, the entrepreneur, to create a healthier, happier world through your ventures. My special guest, I've been waiting honestly for this for quite some time now, is Professor Nora Colton, who's passionate about improving healthcare management and leadership for better health outcomes. And I'm excited to learn more about her role uh, as the inaugural director of the UCL Global Business School for Health in London. And that's a business school dedicated to training uh, health professionals through programs focused on health innovation and management. They're gonna be launching their first programs in September, 2022. So uh, we'll be learning more about that. So Nora, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. What's interesting is from two sides. So at the Entrepreneurs Doctor, uh, you know, I support and mentor uh, entrepreneurs. And in our intelligence incubator, it's a small group of about 15, 20 entrepreneurs. It's about 50-50, 50% are women, 50% are men. So I don't see that problem there. However, with some of the startups that I mentor or I'm part of, or indeed the one that I'm working with, it's the same problem. We find, find it so difficult to bring or find uh, available women who are willing to come on board. And I'm curious, like, why is that, first of all, before we talk about what could we do to support that? Well, I think there's a, a, a number of things that are going on. And, and you know, part of it is societal. Sometimes it has to do with the organization as well. So I think that women, you know, are, of course, uh, equally or more so creative than men. Um, so it, it's not about not having ideas and not wanting necessarily to, to have engaged with a, a startup culture. But I think it can get really complex and, and we see it more broadly. So you know, one of the things about women in leadership, of course, is that you know, women, again, make up the bulk of our, our healthcare workforce, but they're very rarely the decision makers at the top table. Um, and, and actually, if we compare that even to other sectors, health doesn't perform very well. If we look over into the U.S., we see, you know, 80% of the workforce is female and 20% is at the top table. If we look here in the U.K., we get about 75% of the workforce is female, about 40% at the top table, a little better. But then when you consider that the NHS is the fifth largest employer in the world, um, uh, you know, those numbers aren't exactly brilliant either. And then, you know, last but not least, if we look across the globe, we see that women play a, 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 an even less important role in terms of those senior roles. Now, why is that important when we think about entrepreneurship? Well, it's, it's, it says a lot about our cultures, our perceptions of women, the kind of glass ceiling that seems to appear in end health. And, and those top table roles, we, we usually think about, you know, strategy, horizon scanning, you know, the, the idea that they're making decisions and, and critical decisions for an organization, that they've got that skill set around 
not only the people skills, but really the financial skills, those hard skills that are so important. So we think about all those skills, those skills are really important to being able then to step out and run your own business. And when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, I often run into people who have, you know, that experience. They've reached a kind of place within their organization. And, and so there are people who come straight out at the beginning of their career and, and go into startups. But you'll find there's a lot of people who come later on in the process. And it is after they've started to get that kind of wider strategic skills that they start to identify the gaps in the market. So if you're not getting women pushed up in the system to be able to acquire those attributes, that then makes it more difficult for them to then spin out and become the entrepreneurs of the future. I think there's also other challenges around uh, you know, women, particularly you know, when they're in their childbearing years, uh, startups, small businesses, are not always as easy for them to navigate. Um, and you know, we all hear the war stories of the, you know, the, the startup where they were spending 24-7, you know, working day and night out of a garage to come up with some brilliant idea where they went off and, and changed the world. Well, it's really difficult to be working 24-7 in a garage when you've got little children or a, a family to take care of. Um, the other thing is that, so, so I think there's that aspect. And then there's the culture itself. Um, you know, we often talk about, you know, stepping women up, giving them more skills, building their confidence, building their, but we, we forget that we also need to get men to realize and be more aware of just the critical role. The fact that if they want to really be a, a small firm with a high performing team, they need to make it more accessible to women. They need to ensure that they're not three guys in a garage, but they're maybe one guy in a garage with two women. Or, uh, you know, so the, the, the reason that's so important is because all the research tells us that if you want creativity, you want innovation, you need diversity. You need diversity within your people and the way you run your organization. And I think we made that case more clear and really brought the research forward. And I think, you know, it'd be very interesting just to see, you know, those startups that really make it, how many of them have those diverse teams? Um, uh, because that evidence and that, that, that knowledge, we need to get then people who are going to that startup, go the extra mile to make sure that they've got that diversity, particularly around gender. You know, with one of the uh, panel discussions on the summit, the one that you're also going to be a keynote uh, panelist on, um, is all about diversity in the founders. Uh, and actually, I'm taking it from a different angle, in all honesty, but you're making me think now about talking about uh, gender as well, perhaps. So for me, diversity is about getting different kinds of professions, not just medical doctors and not just hardcore on serial entrepreneurs, but people from all sorts of walks of life to, to innovate and uh, be leaders and founders, and not just as entrepreneurs for their own you know, startups, but also as intrapreneurs. That's something I'm a huge fan of and we need more of in the, in the health sector. So I'm really glad you mentioned that, but I'm still kind of 
struggling in a way. So I just want to follow up with one or two questions, if I may. Number one, what are you've mentioned some of the barriers, obviously work-life balance. It's the timing of your life. If you've got a family, I know, you know, even as a man, I know exactly what you mean. Cause you know, we've got childcare responsibilities between the two of us and it's, it's difficult managing uh, a job and uh, my own startup, if you like, but, but I guess who can actually help facilitate that? Is it the role of the, the co-founders? Is it the role of the investors or is it, someone else maybe higher up that can facilitate and create that environment to be more conducive to having more diversity well i i think it takes a, a commitment by all of those people that you've mentioned uh so it, it, it's really about the whole startup sector as it were if we want to call them a sector being much more cognizant of the fact that it, yes it's not just about skill sets it, it's also about getting different kinds of people and 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 it can also be you know different ethnicities and 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 you know we we can go really you, you know across all the protected characteristics that that really make it but i would want to make one other point and that is it's not just about diversity it's about inclusion and you know we we need to make sure that we're creating an inclusive environment um, that we're really uh, and, and, and again, for innovation, for creativity, for just, you know, uh, a better, you know, team and a high performing team, you need that. So, so yes, investors should actually, when they're looking and, and they're doing their dual diligence, they should be asking the question, you know, where are the women? You know, you know, uh, you know, why, why are you structured that way? You know, what, what, what is it about, you know, I think those, what I call even soft challenges start to create a different kind of mindset. And then I think it is really important because, you know, I think women often, you know, because they, they, they need to have that time, they need, you know, that work-life balance is very important. I think we need to get away from this idea of glorifying this person who works 24 seven. And, um, you know, and, and I think it has to be not just, you know, lip service, it's got to be you know, really in practice. Um, I see a lot of people who, you know, uh, outwardly, you know, will, will say, you know, yes, work-life balance, but then they don't practice it. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's how we role model. We need to create a safe space for women in the entrepreneurial startup space so that we can get better ideas, more effective ideas. And, and, and of course, at the end of the day, make a huge impact on patients uh, and, and, you know, uh, a society moreover. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll just share one message uh, before segueing into a tip that you have for the health entrepreneur. Um, you know, speaking specifically to you now, the health entrepreneur, there's a reason why you get into this space. Um, you know, often it could be money. If you're a serial entrepreneur, that, that is the bottom line. That's what drives us. But for many, many of the entrepreneurs that I work with, they came into the health sector for a specific reason. They actually felt a problem with either their own health journey or indeed that of a loved one, or indeed over the last 
couple of years, we've seen everyone struggling with all sorts of issues, just not the pandemic, but mental health, all sorts of other issues. And it drives them to say, look, let's use our entrepreneurial skills to actually make change happen. And if it, if it was earlier on in their career, they would probably have gone to medical school or nursing school, but this is the way that they're doing it. And that's why I'm happy to be serving and helping them with these public health principles, with these population health principles, so that the solutions that they create, and more importantly, the problems that they focus on are indeed the problems that we care about and that are needed by the population, not just another AI tool for the sake of an AI tool, uh, if you know what I mean. So I guess what I was gonna say to the health entrepreneur watching is irrespective of whether you're a man, woman, any gender, any ethnicity, ask yourself, why is it you want to do this? And there are many ways to become a health entrepreneur beyond a huge startup that risks your work-life balance. And indeed, when you do look at work-life balance, it's not just about product market fit or problem solution fit, but venture entrepreneur fit as well. So do think about those. So Nora, back to you. Apologies for doing a, seg a sidestep there. But just broadening out to more broad health entrepreneurship now. So what would be your top tip? What would you like every health entrepreneur out there to know about growing their business? Yeah, well, I think that's a really important question uh, because lots of startups actually, you know, getting that seed money and, and, and doing that initial proof of concept actually doesn't really uh, tend to be the big problem. The big problem is when they start to go to the next stage to really grow their business, to develop their business, to scale it. Um, and, and, and I think the biggest tip I can give entrepreneurs is um, because a lot of health entrepreneurs, as you said, they, they come from the health sector. They, they, they've worked in a job. Um, they might even be in social care uh, and, and they've seen something missing. And so they've, they've had an idea and now they try to take their uh, idea forward. And, you know, just, just as an aside, I had someone this morning come to me with just a brilliant idea of an app. Um, but the first thing this person said to me is, I don't know anything about business, okay? Well, I wanna tell all the entrepreneurs, you need to know something about business. So, you know, part of what we try to do at the Global Business School for Health at UCL is really create those kinds of programs and opportunities for people to come in, not just in our degree programs. We've got a number of degree programs. We've got, you know, a, a fantastic MBA in health um, that of course ticks all the boxes for business and management, uh, as well as an MSc in digital health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got exec dev, short bursts, online courses. And, and I, I know that people will say, well, you know, I, 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 you know, I've been out there, I've been doing it. Um, but it really is often those business imperatives that trip people up. It's not being able to really project manage your idea correctly. It's, it's also um, being overly focused on that product, that first product. And actually really good businesses that have sustainability, that develop and scale are not based off a product. They are really based off more of a concept, a, a, an area. So when you're thinking about where do you want to contribute? What, what's your space that you want to occupy? And you might be a disruptor. You might be wanting to occupy a space that no one else has been. But when you're thinking about how you're going to grow, how is that going to be sustainable? Because I can assure you, 
If you look at most companies that are formed on a product, they have a lifespan, if they're lucky, if they're lucky, 20, 30 years. I mean, that, those are the real big ones. But the companies that go on and, and, and have generation after generation of success are not founded on one product. They're founded on a much bigger mission. They've been scaffolded from the beginning through good business and management practices so that they can not only scale, but they can sustain that development over time. So that's really my, my, my uh, tip uh, uh, is get, make sure if you don't have the expertise and if you don't have the time or energy to go back and, and get the expertise, I'd make sure that that team you put together has somebody who does and that can really understand how to set you up from the beginning, um, both from a finance side, but from uh, an organizational perspective and a process perspective to be much more than just a product idea. Oh, wow. Uh, you probably didn't see me nodding there for those who are watching. You know, I was like nodding nonstop because I agree with every, absolutely everything that you mentioned there. There are so many startups that come and approach the health sector. You, you probably know this as well, Nora, and they come in with the latest tech gadget, tool, app, whatever. And they come in with a pitch deck usually that's investor ready, but not health sector ready. <laughs> and they, you know, and, and I love entrepreneurs, don't get me wrong, and I wanna support them, but that's a big problem. And secondly, as you say, too much focus on either what's under the hood, if you like, in terms of the technology, or indeed the problem that they wanna solve, but not so much about the audience. Who is it that they wanna help? Where, where do they, what does good look like? What's your vision of good for that sector, for your audience? and then build anything, any kind of product, any solution, indeed partner with others who are to, to get closer to that vision in an incremental way. Uh, absolutely agree with you. Um, oh, let's take that uh, offline and then bring you into the summit and talk more about that because there's so much to cover and unravel there. I wanna learn more about the, the, you know, the MBA program and other programs that you're, you're offering and who are they specifically for and what can they get from those programs? Now, well, what we've tried to do at uh, UCL, in the Global Business School for Health, is, uh, again, be disruptive. You know, come up with some programs that are a more cutting edge, forward-looking. So rather than, you know, just go out and duplicate what's in the market, we, we've really tried to create uh, what, what is healthcare? What is that e health ecosystem going to look like in the future? And what are the skills and, and traits and characteristics and attributes that we need to build into our graduates? So actually, we, we did extensive research uh, with employers, with prospective students. So we've come up with a suite of courses that I think are really exciting. Of course, our flagship is our MBA Health. And, you know, it, it has been designed to have everything you'd expect in an MBA. But one of my biggest frustrations when I used to look at MBAs with health specialisms was that they'd be an MBA, a general MBA, with a little bit of health tacked on at the end and maybe a dissertation, you know, that you would do in health. And um, so what we've tried to do with our MBA is really create a holistic experience. So, so it, you know, sometimes I have students that are worried they want the general MBA. We've got all, everything you get in a general MBA, but health is our DNA. So 
We, we do lots of case studies. I want people to be good decision makers. I want them to be competent decision makers. Um, so learning how to scan lots of data and information and synthesize it and make critical decisions is, is a core attribute for our graduates. We also want to really you know, build up that entrepreneur innovative uh, thinking. So students work on a project it's called the Global Health Challenge. And at the very beginning, they're put in these groups we just talked about, high performing groups. So we give them psychometric tests and then we place them in groups that by definition should be high performing. And then across the year, they'll get workshops on how to be a high performing team. And they work with uh, the UCL academics on coming up with a health solution in a lower middle income country. Um, and, and, and then of course their final assessment is a paper and a pitch. So that's a, a key, key attribute, again, we wanna build in. And then of course, we've got a health consultancy uh, module, you know, as one of their final uh, uh, summative kind of assessments where they work with a real company, uh, NHS hospital, it could be management consultancy. Uh, and and it, again, we try to align it with where is this person going? What do they want? You know, and a big part of the induction on this program is visualizing yourself, not just in the MBA, but manifesting yourself after the MBA. Where are you going with this? And, and so I, I think it's really excited. It's delivered in blocks. So students come in for a four-week block. It's a very intensive, I, I see it as a number of sprints. So they get, say, a week of strategy, a week of, you know, human resource management, a week of marketing, and then they have what's called wrap-up week. And that's where we bring in all these health professionals, like yourself, who really bring it all alive for the students. So that, that's our MBA. And at a, as I said, you can see I'm really excited about that. I think it's just a, an incredible... Where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a transformational experience. And then yeah. we've got three, three MSCs. But again, we've, we've gone out there with the idea, these are not gonna be like anything you, you've seen before. So we have digital health and entrepreneurship. Um, and you know what we've tried to do there is really build in not just med tech, but health tech, you know, things like human factors of digital health, how do you do health assessments, uh, you know, frugal technology, uh, but more important, you know, how do you get the efficacy and evidence and, and effectiveness measurements so we have a, a really good research module that looks at the WHO guidelines around digital health to make sure that students understand, you know, uh, what they're doing and why. Um, and then the, the uh, and again, the, they do a, pro, a project in that. All the MSCs, all our pro programs have uh, projects because, you know, it's about really getting your hands dirty as alongside getting the content and strategy and all that, uh, that really makes, I, I believe, a difference in, a, in, in such a program. So the other really super novel program is biotech and pharmaceutical management. Um, you know, we, we're, we're not there to teach you the science. We're not there to teach you biotechnology or, or, or pharma. What we are there to do is teach you the business of these organizations. So you do clinical trials and statistics, you do pharmacoeconomics, you do policy and practices of those, but then you also do uh, commercialization of research, I guess, commercialization and marketing of uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know, you do capital and private equity markets for healthcare. You do supply chain management. So, 
Uh, and again, those students also do a project and pitch. So, so this is really, and, and then our, our final MSc is global healthcare management. And, and that we really looked at what employers wanted. And what we saw were three things employers kept coming back and telling us. They needed people who understand finance. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, and I've, I've met many, you know, really clever clinicians who've got brilliant ideas who cannot put together a business plan. Yeah. So, you know, that finance aspect is so integral to anything if you're pushing out in this space. The second area is analytics. You know, everything is about data nowadays. And, you, uh, you, and whether you sit on a board, whether you, you're, you're assessing another company, You've got to understand that that space and and how how the data is being used and in informing what they're doing and how they're going to go forward. And then last but not least, leadership. So we've created a MSc then in global healthcare management. You get kind of four core course courses. You know, leadership management, human resource management, you know, finance, uh, you know, uh, health systems. But then you do four specialized courses. So you can either pick a pathway in finance, one in analytics or leadership. So these are all really, I think, exciting programs. We're also going to be launching a, a, in the following year uh, an executive MBA for people who are more mid-career, um, along with a, a doctorate in uh, business administration health. Uh, and for people who you know are more senior and, and who want to come back and, and get that, those skills. So I... I I love the school. I'm, I'm really passionate about it. I, I think it, you know, it's, it's novel and it's an opportunity to bring people from pharma, biotech, you know, medicine, healthcare, public health, private health, to really have a conversation, um, to really learn together um, and come out to re rethink really health systems. And we, gosh, I think we both know now is no better time than than you could imagine for needing that kind of work and those kinds of people with those skill sets. First of all, if you are interested, do check out the link uh, to the programs at UCL Global Business School for Health. Uh, it's down below in the description. But honestly, Nora, where have you been all my life? Because <laughs> 20, 20 years ago, almost, not, not 20, but uh, when I finished medical school, I was thinking about doing an MBA in healthcare management. Uh, decided to go into public health and I'm glad I did and the reason for that is many of the skills we learn in public health uh, the research the analytics the health systems the systems thinking the leadership how to understand needs and bring them to a solution that actually works and evaluate them on an ongoing basis it's the same principles in a way uh, not all, every aspect of business and growing a business are there but generally the rest are there. And then fast forward to when I was in Boston at the Harvard School of Public Health, we were talking about how to train and teach, um, you know, leaders in the world of public health. And we actually worked with the business school, Harvard Business School, to learn about their case-based method teaching approach and then applied that for designing courses to teach public health students from all sorts of backgrounds how to actually be leaders in the world of population and public health. And then again, fast forward to when I was in Cyprus and uh, designing a course in innovation and entrepreneurship in the health sector as a postgraduate module, if you like, within a wider program, I started putting together a curriculum for an, a master's in digital health. And I'm hearing all of these flooding back to me now that you're talking about it. And I love it. I'm glad that you're finally someone is you know, really stepping up to do this. And 
two messages I have to share with, with our audience. Number one, if you are an entrepreneur interested in the health sector, 100% this will be worthwhile. It sounds like you might want to think about some of the shorter courses to begin with if you're busy, uh, but definitely it's worthwhile. But more importantly to health professionals out there, and indeed those who are decision makers for the workforce in the health sector, we need more people thinking like this. It's great to be a great clinician, but if once you understand the wider systems issues, once you understand the financial issues, the how to grow services from a business perspective, that is gonna be very, it's important for a viable, sustainable health system, wherever in the world you are, whether it's private or public funded or insurance funded. So that's my take on it. I don't know if you wanna come back on that before I ask you two wrap up questions, Nora. No, I, I, I you know, I, I couldn't echo more. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, it, it is a difficult time that we're living in. And, and I think, you know, health and health challenges are, are tremendous. But I also have real faith in my fellow human being and, and our ability as, a, you know, a health sector and community to really find solutions to address, you know, the, the growing demand. So... Uh, and, and that's what really drives me forward. And, and I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, that that's a, a tremendous responsibility. And so any way in which we, through the goal of this school, can contribute to that, I'm, I'm really excited to do that. Well, I'm going to be your raving fan behind the scenes and I'll do anything, <laughs> anything I can to help. So uh, before I ask you a question, the final question, which is about what you would do if you were going to launch your own startup, uh, Nora, uh, I'd like to learn more now about you and your background. You've got something, you know, we were talking a bit about it, but I'd love to hear it in your own words, like your story and what led you here. Yeah, well, I, I really uh, fortunate. I had, uh, you know, uh, as an academic, uh, a real portfolio career, as it were. Uh, you know, I, I started out, of course, uh, in the United States, did, did my bachelor's and my master's. And then I, I developed a real fascination with the Middle East and uh, went to the American University of Cairo, studied there for a year and, and also learned Arabic. And, and then uh, just really saw so much um, and and my my area of expertise is really economic development, um, and so I I then of course went to Oxford, did my PhD there, uh, really specializing in in development, uh, and and wrote a, a, my dissertation at, uh, at the time on Yemen and really looking at the kind of structural changes to the economy in in Yemen. Um, which, as you can imagine, in the time that I was there, uh, which was the early 90s, you know, just a tremendous experience to see uh, Yemen and, and, and also to, to really witness, not just from a, a, an economic standpoint, but from a health standpoint and realizing just how important all, all of that is when it comes together. Um, so I, I, I've then really spent most of my career, uh, you know, working in, in that area. And then uh, over time, I came to really appreciate just how important this health space is. And, and, uh, and, and really, it's, it's that combination, right, of education and health that really uh, makes a difference to society. So I went back to school and, uh, you know, later in my career and did a master's in health economics and pharmacoeconomics and 
so that I could really start to widen my research and my work. Um, but I've had just lots of opportunities along the way. Um, about 10 years ago, I, I relocated from the United States to the UK, moved more into managerial roles, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and in, the, in the higher education sector. And so I've been able to, to really now have this tremendous opportunity. It's just been fantastic. Uh, you know, I joined UCL about four years ago. I was working, you know, across to Moorfields Eye Hospital. Uh, they're in the process of developing a, a new hospital uh, facility, and uh, part of that business case was really to develop their education. So I was brought in to do that with UCL and, and the Institute of Ophthalmology and, and, and had just a lot of fun working and getting to know the consultants, but it gave me real insight into the NHS, um, and particularly at the tertiary care level. Uh, and uh, so... Being able now to have this role and to set up this global business school for health, uh, where I can pull in, you know, my my work in in you know kind of a, a low uh, income region, uh, you know, working in particularly Yemen and and other parts of, of the Middle East like Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and and Egypt, and then think about that in in this kind of wider context uh, of of just health and health inequalities, uh, and, and, and then combine that with my, my background in economics and, and having worked in, in business school. So um, I, I, I also want to just make sure that, you know, it, uh, your listeners realize that this kind of linear career is really, uh, you know, often a myth, you know, oh, it's yeah. a story that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And and, and what I see now is I, you know, I, I can come to the, the role I have now. I have a wealth of experience, as I said, in higher education management. I know how to scaffold it and build the department. And, um, but I also have all these other life experiences and, and my more broader education. So it is you know, uh, appropriate for me to be speaking to you because it's like a startup. I'm, I'm in a large organization, but I'm, I'm starting up something very novel, very new, bringing it from, from scratch. I understand the wider context that, that both in terms of health, in terms of business and management, and moreover, how to do that in a higher education institution. So you know, it, it's really uh, leveraging those kinds of skills that you acquire over, over the course of your life um, and, and recognizing those transferable skills. And I think often what I see with many individuals, particularly in the health sector, because, you know, and, and on the medical side moreover, because of your professional accreditations and, and, and the kind of narrowness of, uh, uh, that we pass that we put people on, um, they often, lack that ability to really understand and appreciate that they can leverage all of those things across their career to do new things, to try new things and, and to venture into new, new areas. So I just feel tremendously uh, privileged actually to have this opportunity to set up this school and to have acquired all those skills across my career. I can't wait to see, uh, honestly, your programs develop and, and see the innovation in it. I mean, a lot of the things out there are tried and tested. It's the topics and the audience that you're working with and this interdisciplinary and intersectoral approach that you're taking, which I, I love. And I first 
in all honesty, the first time I came across that was when, again, I was a student in Boston and every single, maybe it's a public health mindset, but every single opportunity I had, I would go across from the, what we call the Longwood campus, which is where the medical uh, school was and the School of Public Health to the main campus to speak with architects, to speak with engineers, to speak with the business school and indeed the school, of, the Kennedy School of Government. And I remember distinctly, uh, and you'll hear why I'm, I'm saying this, one seminar that I went to was with uh, one of prof uh, Professor, President Obama's uh, advisors, you know, Valerie Jarrett was speaking there. And it turned out that she was born at the same hospital that I was born in, in Iran, of all random places. She's not Persian, she's not Iranian, but she was born there. And I think her father was involved in building the hospital. And it turned out that, you know, I ended up going back to that uh, hospital in Shiraz for my medical school elective when I initially, and this is coming back around to your story, when I was thinking about becoming an eye surgeon and ophthalmologist. Fast forward, and I really recommend you speaking to this colleague and friend of mine. Uh, fast forward, I went to medical school with this guy, Andrew Bastaros. He's an ophthalmologist based, he's a professor now at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And about 10 years ago, he was one of the first few people who inspired me to get into this world of health innovation and entrepreneurship. So he was out doing his, I think his PhD, I may have got that wrong, but he was out in rural parts of Kenya. And as an eye surgeon, they were doing screening campaigns uh, for diabetic eye screening and all sorts of other things and blindness. And they realized that they can't be carrying all this heavy equipment around. And so they worked with their engineers and they came up with this 3D uh, printed model of just turning a smartphone into a fundoscope, something to look at the back of the eye and to do eye screening and all sorts of other things. Um, his program uh, has now turned into a venture uh, a not-for-profit non uh, venture called Peak Vision. And he's been all over as a TED fellow. He's been all over. Uh, do look at that. And I'd love for you to both meet, actually. I think it would be fantastic as part of the UCL program as well. So a long story about me and apologies for going roundabout, but you said so many things that have hit a nerve and I can't wait to meet you in person, Nora. But now to my uh, ultimate question, which is if you were going to, you, you kind of are doing a health startup now in an education I startup. Am, actually. So if you were going to launch the next one um, for addressing anything in the health sector and not just healthcare, it could be education, it could be anything. Let's not worry about the solution, but what would the problems be that you'd like to solve? So uh, I, you know, the, this really speaks to me because I, I ha have a real passion about patient education. Um, this is something that, you know, through, throughout my, my career, and of course, when I was at Moorfields, um, I did start doing, uh, developing co courses for patients. I think, you know, we are living in a time and we talk about, you know, patient-centered uh, healthcare, um, um, you know, enabling patients to use technology. But one of the things that always sticks in my back of my mind is that even in the kind of health system that we've had up to this new normal, um, compliance is always an issue. Um, and people often, after several months of being, you know, administered a medication or a therapy, will start to deviate from the, the prescribed, uh, either the prescription or the prescribed way in which they're supposed to be taking things. And, and I, I believe that often that is because we um, 
haven't moved forward enough with education. And people often will go on Google. Doctors often really dislike people who come in and, and quote Google, but it tells me that there is a thirst out there for knowledge. And so uh, I would like to see us not just train up, you know, uh, professionals to work in the health sector. We need to be training up our societies in, and, and, and create much better health literacy at different levels through your life. Um, and, and so creating courses and, you know, opportunities um, and then really getting the kind of endorsement that we need. Uh, you know, I, I think we leave way too much to Google, to Wikipedia, to these kinds of sources um, and it's complacency. So if we are expecting people to, you know, do home testing and to use equipment, um, I think giving them uh, uh, much more, we, we as a population are, are, you know, particularly in the UK, we're, we're, we're very educated. And yet if you go on and you look at various diseases, you will find that the material out there is very static. Um, much of it is very haphazard, um, you know, and, and yet I constantly run into people, highly educated people who self-educate themselves about their illness. They, uh, they, they do, do the kind of research. So we need to make that easier. We need to make it more accessible. We need to make patient education less patronizing. Yeah. Um, and, and we need to, to create, like I said, courses and opportunities for people to connect, to learn, to really advance their knowledge um, in places other than Facebook. 